This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash checkthelocks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to Check the Locks Podcast. As always, I'm John Connor. I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case. Before we begin, as always, Olivia, it's wonderful to see you. How are you? How has your week been? It's been a good week. Happy Wednesday to you. I feel like we're always recording these on Wednesday nights nowadays. I'm doing really good. It's not a busy week, not a slow week. It's just an average week, I'd say. How are you? I'm doing okay. We're getting over COVID, which if you're in the Facebook group, you might have seen that. I kind of blame you because last week when we were recording, I didn't realize until I was editing the episode, but you were like, tomorrow morning, you're going to have COVID. And I was like, nah. And then (laughs) tomorrow, the next morning, all night, Wednesday night, I had the chills and I was like, oh no, I've definitely got COVID. So doing better on the mend. I had all the weird symptoms I was telling you before we recorded, but I was getting like really weird leg cramps and facial spasms and a bunch of weird stuff. So happy to be on the mends, but now the COVID has turned into an ear infection. So I'm now on antibiotics for an ear infection. So if I sound gross while we're recording this episode, please bear with me. I am still severely stuffed up, but was not going to let that stop us from doing an episode and making sure that we had everything out on time because I love doing this podcast. I love getting to hang out with you and I've been looking forward to this all week. So well, good. I'm glad you're feeling better. And uh, hey, kudos to you for not getting COVID until January of 2023. Yeah, I made it a little under three years from when the pandemic it started. started so. Yeah. And I think our podcast will be a true testament of how much we've been sick this year, because I feel like if you go back and listen, I was all congested and sickly all summer. And now since fall into the winter, you have been off and on not feeling well. So hopefully by, you know, maybe next month, we'll be feeling ourselves and back to 100 percent and not sick every other week. Yeah, I am right there with you. And, you know, I know we have a lot of parents that listen. And when you have a young kid, it is almost impossible not to get sick when they're sick because, I mean, Millie tries to cover her mouth, I would say about 30% of the time she actually gets her elbow in front of her face. But, 
you know, it's just open mouth coughing, like right into your mouth. And it's, you know, it's a lot of germs flying around. So, and in the grand scheme of things, things could have definitely been worse. Kara was fine. Millie had the cough, but you know, she's doing great now. And hopefully I'm on the mend as well. So, you know, things could have been a lot worse. A lot of people have gotten it a lot worse. So I am just uh, happy to be feeling better and getting back at it. So. Well, Olivia, this week is your week and you are bringing the case for us. Talk to us a little bit about what we're going to be looking at this week. Well, this week we're going to talk about some murders in Portland, Maine and Nebraska that were committed by the Woodford Slasher. I've never heard of this one. I'm super interested to dive into it. It sounds like it's going to be really interesting. When I was researching this case, it was making me think of something that you probably have already done because it's about young boys who are getting murdered. Um, and that just made me think of like the Texas Candyman that you did and Christopher DeNoyer. And I was like, I don't recognize any of these names, but then just the pattern seems similar. But once I got into the case, I was like, oh, yeah, John hasn't done this one, but it was just starting to feel and seem familiar. Yeah. And these are definitely kind of the cases that I think piqued my interest and looking through your notes here, I did notice that there is going to be a common thread through another case that we can talk about a little bit when we get there. But like I said, I'm completely unfamiliar with this and the details of it. So I'm really excited to dive into it. All right. Well, let's just jump into it. On the evening of August 23rd, 1982, Richard Stetson went for a jog in his neighborhood. He was from a working class family that lived in Portland, Maine, which was known as a popular summer vacation destination. The next morning, Stetson's body was found right off the jogging path lying in the grass. It was later proven that he died from asphyxiation. He was choked with the ligature, had various stab wounds, and no signs of being sexually assaulted. He did, however, have multiple human bite marks throughout his body that appeared to be gouged with a knife. Two years earlier, a nine-year-old boy named Michael Witham recalled an encounter in the Oakdale area of Portland, Maine, when a young man called him over to an empty lot on his walk home. This young man asked him several questions about his name, how old he was, and where he lived. The suspect told the boy that he could be on his way after he answered his questions. Witham turned to leave and the attacker cut his throat and left him for dead. Thankfully, Michael survived the almost deadly attack and he was able to give police a description of a white male that appeared to be in his late teens or early 20s. Police had no real leads for an entire year before they arrested 24-year-old Joseph Anderson. Now we're going to jump over to uh, Nebraska. On September 18, 1983, in Bellevue, Nebraska, 1,500 miles away from Portland, Maine, 13-year-old Danny Joe Eberly was out delivering the local newspaper when he suddenly disappeared. Police were able to identify that he only made it partially through his regular route. His bicycle was found in front of a house that he delivered to, but there was no signs of Danny Joe's whereabouts. Detectives searched for three days across the state of Nebraska when search crews found his body off a lone road about four miles from where his bicycle was left. Danny Joe Eberly was found stripped of his clothes down to his underwear. His hands and feet were bound together and his mouth was covered in tape. His body was stabbed in various locations. He too had bite marks and an unusual star-shaped pattern carved into his chest to try to hide them. And again, there were no signs of sexual assault. Detectives began to follow leads of young men who had been arrested for molestation around the time of the murders, but everyone was cleared. The FBI was now involved in the case and thought they could possibly have a cross-country serial killer on their hands. Stetson and Everly's crime scenes and wounds were oddly similar, suggesting that this killer could be leaving their signature. FBI's psychological profile, Robert Ressler, began putting the pieces together to create a profile of who the killer may be before they could tack again, but they were too late. Now, this, I believe, is where some of our stories start to intertwine slightly. 
Yeah. What do you think? So if you go back to the Vampire of Sacramento case that we did, we talked about an FBI profiler being involved and building out the profile of who they thought this killer might be. And again, this was before FBI profiling was really a thing, but that was Robert Ressler as well, who is also the FBI profiler that is in this story. So it's very interesting to have these two stories so close together that are involving the same FBI agent. Yeah, that's crazy. And remind me, what year was the vampire killer? So the vampire of Sacramento took place between 1977 and 1978. So this would have been just a few years before these killings started happening in Nebraska. That's wild. I mean, that just shows you probably how small the FBI was and probably in the Department of like homicides and things. If the same FBI profiler is doing profiling in Sacramento and Nebraska, you know, he's kind of all over the country. Yeah, I think it just speaks to the fact that there was a really small team that was assigned to these kind of horrific murders. You know, when you sent your notes over, I was like, wrestler, that sounds really familiar. And I was like, oh, yes, that's the it's the guy who worked the Vampire Sacramento case. So it's a, a really strange coincidence because we're only doing these like a couple of weeks apart. So, yeah, good catch, John. Thank you. Meanwhile, back in Portland, Maine, police released Joseph Anderson after more than a year in jail as his dental impressions did not match those found on the body of Richard Stetson. Now, on December 3rd, 1983, 12-year-old Christopher Walden was abducted on his walk to school in Bellevue, Nebraska. Now, the town of Bellevue was in a panic as two young boys had been kidnapped, one murdered and the other still missing. Search parties quickly took to the snow-covered grounds looking for Christopher Walden. Sadly, just three days after he went missing, a group of bird hunters stumbled upon a snow-covered young male body. The body later identified as Christopher Walden was found about three miles from where Danny Joe Eberly's body was found. He too was stripped to his underwear, hands and feet tied together with rope. He had multiple stab wounds along with a star shaped carved into his body. This time there was evidence left behind. Investigators found two sets of footprints leading towards the crime scene, but only one set headed back towards the road. This gave police the impression that the killer was likely working alone. People around Walden School reported to police that they remembered seeing him with a young male in his early 20s just a few days prior. FBI profiler Robert Ressler released a composite sketch of who they could possibly be looking for. A white male with dark hair, aged 18 to 25, about 5'8 to 5'10 and about 160 pounds. They released this image on the local news. A woman told police that she believed she was walking her dog when the abduction of Christopher happened. She could not fully recall the entire incident, so police asked her to undergo hypnosis to see if it would help her remember. Many people would say that hypnosis is unreliable. However, she recalled seeing a young boy and a slightly older male about the same height. The car leaving the scene was brown with a license plate that started with the letter R and followed by a series of numbers. Sheriff Thomas, who was leading the investigation of the two murdered boys in Bellevue, went on the local news reaching out to the community for assistance. He stated that he believed whoever the killer was was very, very sick, spineless, and a coward. Now, on January 11, 1984, Barbara Weaver worked in a daycare center. She arrived early that day and noticed a strange car in the parking lot. The driver was wearing a ski cap, and it reminded her of the composite sketch she saw on the news. She began to write down the license plate number when the driver noticed and stormed Barbara, threatening her with a knife. She was able to get away and notify police. The license plate matched that of the previous witness, again it's starting with the letter R and followed by a series of numbers. 
The plate was run and traced back to 19-year-old John Jubert, who was an active-duty Air Force member at Offutt Air Force Base. He was a maintenance mechanic in the radar unit. John Jubert was born in Lawrence, Massachusetts on July 7, 1963. His parents divorced when he was six years old, and he had a hard time in school as he was teased by his peers. He joined the Cub Scouts and excelled, becoming an Eagle Scout and later an assistant scout leader. When he was 11, his family moved to Portland, Maine. When he was in his early teen years, he had several incidences in school. Once, he stabbed a nine-year-old girl named Sarah Canny with a pencil in the back. He cut another girl with a razor blade while riding his bicycle. His behaviors worsened when he nearly strangled eight-year-old Chris Day. However, Jubert was never punished for these crimes. He enlisted in the Air Force in 1983, moving him from Portland, Maine to Offutt Air Force Base just south of Bellevue, Nebraska. FBI and local detectives now believe this could be the man they are looking for. Because of this, a search warrant was issued. In his car, police found a brown strand of hair that was sent to the DNA lab. It was determined that the hair was that of Danny Joe Eberly. They also discovered a knife and tape, and also in the back of the car there was a rope. Little did John Jubert know this rope was very unique. According to Jubert, he was given this rope in Boy Scouts. The core of this particular rope had 106 different fibers. When compared to the rope that was used to bind Danny and Christopher, it was found to be an exact match. When police confronted Jubert about the evidence they had against him, he confessed. Jubert told police about the second murder of Christopher Walden first because it was fresh on his mind. He admitted that he was in fact the Oakdale Slasher. Now remember when he cut Michael Witham's throat back in Maine, the nine-year-old boy? Yeah. He also told police that after killing Danny, he walked into a local McDonald's, washed his hands of the blood, and ordered breakfast. After he murdered Christopher, he went to a Boy Scout meeting, and the troop discussed the abductions that were happening in Nebraska. Now, on July 3, 1984, John Jubert pled guilty to the murders of Danny Joe Eberly and Christopher Walden. When asked if he ever was to be released from prison, would he commit another murder? He replied, yeah, I probably would. I wouldn't be able to contain myself. He was sentenced to death for both murders in Nebraska. Now, this was bringing a lot of attention back to Portland, Maine, where Jubert had resided in the past. Detectives noticed similarities in the cases from Nebraska and Richard Stenson's case, and John Jubert immediately became a suspect. Nebraska sent samples of Jubert's hair and impressions of his teeth to Maine, and he was found to be a match. Jubert was indicted for the murder of Richard Stetson on January 10, 1986. He was sentenced to life in prison in Maine as they do not have the death penalty. On July 17, 1996, at 12.14 a.m., 33-year-old John Jubert was executed via electric chair in the state of Nebraska. He was only the second person to be executed in Nebraska since the death penalty was reinstated in 1973. Before his execution, he shared his final words. I just want to say that again, I am sorry for what I have done. I do not know if my death will change anything or if it will bring anyone peace. And I just ask the families of Danny Eberly and Christopher Walden and Richard Stetson to please try to find some peace and ask the people of Nebraska to forgive me. That's all. After John's death, he was found to have a four-inch blister on the top of his head and to both ears. This information was discovered by death penalty activists, and they argued that the electric chair was cruel and unusual punishment, and cited the blisters as evidence. Because of this, an appeal was sent to the Nebraska Supreme Court. The court sided with the activists, and a change was made. While Nebraska still has the death penalty, they now only use lethal injection, and the electric chair is no longer allowed. That's a crazy story. And it's also really 
intense to think that this kid was only 19 years old. You know what I mean? That's a Mm -hmm. really young age to be a serial killer, you know? And I was wondering in your research, I mean, did they talk anything at all about motive or, I mean, did he say anything about why he had done these things? From what I can tell, there was no clear motive um, in my research, but there was a lot of things that I kind of came across and, you know, you never know what's like true and factual. So I always kind of, I feel like I leave out some things, but then we talk about it later. But there was um, some reports saying that when he was younger, he had this babysitter, apparently, that he would fantasize about murdering and doing cannibalism. And so I think that there were some younger behaviors that probably went unnoticed or not attended to that, of course, were red flags to say that he was probably going to be some sort of psychopath or serial killer. But there was never really any clear motive, like confessed to the murders. There was actually something that said they asked, like, if he knew if he was like sad or if he knew the boys. And he basically was like, no, like, I have no feelings for them. Like, I don't know who they are. Yeah, that's crazy. And it definitely seems like being such a young age that there was definitely some mental health issues going on, you know, that just seemed to not have been caught. And it's just crazy to think that, you know, again, this is a 19 year old kid. He's a boy scout, you know, from the outside looking in, he probably seems completely normal. He's joining the air force. Yeah. And then to think that inside this kid is just a monster. You know what I mean? This it's scary just to think somebody like that is walking around and you wouldn't think that they're capable of the things that they're doing. Right. Well, let's get into it. Let's talk deadbolt test. You know, for me, yeah, I would probably put this at a five because his crimes are definitely grisly. You know what I mean? But I'm also not a child. You know, I'm not associating with 19 year old kids. It does make me a little bit nervous to think about who my daughter might be hanging out with when she's a teenager, you know, and I know I made fun of it last week, but that's like my dad perspective, Mm -hmm. you know, where it's like, it just makes you wonder about who your kids are hanging out with and things like that. And even these kids who probably met John Jubert or were approached by John Jubert, he's 19 years old. He's a Boy Scout. He's a young guy. They probably didn't see him as a threat in that moment. And we've done so many cases so far, like the scream murder comes to mind. Daniel LaPlante comes to mind, but about these young kids who have these issues that aren't addressed. And then again, they end up doing these terrible things. So am I going to check my locks tonight? Yes. Cause I always do, but I'm not going to double check them because of John Jubert, but this might be something a couple of years from now is still ruminating in my head. But what about you? Where do you fall? Yeah, this one wasn't that, you know, scary to me in the sense of checking my locks. Um, so I'll probably put it at about a, a four, you know, I'm not in this category at all, but I do think that how people behave And the murders that they do and kind of how they talked about the signature and how initially he was putting the like leaving the bite marks on these young boys and then kind of slashing through them almost to like cover them up. But then it ended up turning into, you know, more like a star looking carved into their bodies. And I I find that very scary, you know, to know that there are people like that, that have these thoughts and these feelings and think about what it would be like to murder somebody and then actually doing it and then like leaving your mark on them, like marking your territory. That's terrifying to me. 
Yeah, I definitely agree. And the cannibalism aspect is definitely something that's got a really high creep factor. And I also think that's really interesting when we talk about kind of the through lines through cases, right? Like Wrestler was the FBI agent involved in the Vampire of Sacramento, which was a cannibal case as well. And then we had the Grinder murder case, which had an element of cannibalism as well. And so this is like our third case in the last couple of weeks that has had that element to it. And it's just, I don't know, something about that just makes any one of these stories automatically like a million times creepier. You know what I mean? Don't forget about Willie Pigton, the pig farmer. He technically participated in cannibalism just in a different way. It's just crazy. You know what I mean? To think that out of all the cases that we've done, it's been a part of a majority of them. So it's just, like I said, it just makes everything more creepy. Yeah. Well, that's what I got this week. The Woodford slasher. Well, that is where we are falling on the deadbolt test. I am putting this at a five. Olivia is putting this at a four. But as always, we want to know, where does the Woodford slasher fall on your deadbolt test? You can let us know by reaching out to us on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. You can find us on Twitter at Check the Locks. Or if you're not in our Facebook group, come hang out with us every day. I have to take a moment and just say a huge thank you. I had a ton of people reach out and just check on me and make sure I was okay, you know, during COVID and everything like that. So just really appreciate all the love from everybody in the group. And it really is an amazing group of human beings. So we would love to have you be part of that community. Come hang out with us. It's just so much fun. And again, it's the best place on the internet. Olivia, no pun intended, but I have a bad taste in my mouth from this case. (laughs) You got a five-star review for us to read? I do. And this one actually has a cool name. I think it's a funny name. It's witty. Um, This week's five-star review um, comes from Craps007. So I'm feeling like there's some sort of like gambler. Um, But they said, hands down, one of the best new true crime podcasts. Awesome quality, narration, and the hosts are even better. Continual goosebumps in store. So thank you, Craps007. Thank you very much, Craps007, for taking the time to leave us that message. Glad that we are able to provide the goosebumps and that you are enjoying the episodes. We would definitely love to send you some swag. Again, reach out to us. Instagram, check the locks pod. Twitter, check the locks. If you're in our Facebook group, holler at us, let us know. If you are not a social person, that is totally fine. You can head over to checkthelockspod.com. Click the email button. Send us an email. Let us know it's you. And we would love to get you some stuff in the mail. Also, while you're at checkthelockspod.com, You can also hit the microphone button there and leave us a voicemail. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Olivia, if somebody wants to have their five-star review read on the podcast, what is the best way to do that? Well, hop on over to the Apple Podcast app, go to our show's homepage, scroll all the way where you see the five stars, click all five stars, and just leave us a little bit of love and tell us what you think. That's right. Hop on the good foot, do the bad thing, leave us a review. You can use a link in the show notes to do that. Again, these reviews really help us out a lot. They help us get into other shows, recommendations, and to grow our community and just to get more listeners involved. So if you have taken the time to leave us a review, thank you so much for doing that. If not, we would love to hear what you think. Head over to Apple Podcasts, leave us that review. If you are interested in financially supporting Check the Locks, you can do so at our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash check the locks. We have a bunch of great tiers. You can get exclusive stickers, t-shirts, coffee mugs, all sorts of stuff. We're working on bonus content, all sorts of fun stuff there for the people who are able to support us. So if you can head on over, we would love to have you help us keep the lights on. And if you cannot financially support the show, that is definitely understandable. We understand the times are what they are. Listening to the show, hanging out with us every single week means just as much, if not more. So if you're listening to us every week, you're checking out the episodes, you're sharing them with your friends and your family from the bottom of our hearts, we greatly appreciate 
appreciate it. Thank you so much for letting people know about what we do. That is all that we have for this week's episode. Please make sure you are subscribed to Check the Locks on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. We will see you again next week with a brand new, truly terrifying true crime case. But until then, don't forget to check the locks. We'll see you next week. Bye.